Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Open up to Romans chapter 8. Let me begin by just telling you what's in my heart as I approach the text that we're going to look at both this Sunday and in the next four or five weeks. We are coming to the 8th chapter of Romans and the 28th verse. It is a verse that I have been viewing with anticipation since January 1st or 2nd, first week in January 2010 when we started our journey through Paul's letter to the church at Rome. And I've looked forward to that both with excitement and with trepidation because what I believe my personal conviction related to the 28th verse and the verses that follow down to the end of the chapter is that what we are coming to in the Word of God is like unto what Moses came to when he looked and there on the hillside was a bush ablaze. And he noticed that that bush, though it was consumed in flame was not being consumed. And so he turned aside to see this strange sight. And as he did so, the voice of God spoke and said, Moses, take your shoes off, for the ground upon which you are standing is holy ground. In like manner, I believe that the text of Romans 8 28 to the end of the chapter is holy ground on the geography of God's Word. Not that all of God's Word is not holy, it is. All of it is good. All of it is profitable and useful. But here we have what I believe is holy ground that we should approach reverently, humbly, expectantly and see what God through the illumination of His Spirit unfolds for us. So let me just read, we're going to cover just one verse today, the 28th verse of the 8th chapter and I'm just going to ask you in honor to the Word of God. I know you've been up and down, but would you just please stand as I read this verse? I'm going to read from the ESV. Paul writes in Romans 8.28, For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. One more time. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good 
for those who are called according to his purpose. You may be seated. The first thing that I want to point out to you, we're just going to take this phrase by phrase, statement by statement here. And the first statement that I want to draw your attention to is that Paul says, We know. We know. I want you to notice the explicit, emphatic certainty that Paul is using here. It is a very explicit statement in the Greek. We see a little bit of that in English, but it's a very strong statement in the Greek that he makes about the preeminent truth that is included here. He says we know about this truth. This is not wishful thinking. This is not conjecture. This is something that Paul in his mind has no shadow of a doubt over. He knows this truth. It is immutable, meaning unchanging. It is absolute. And he is 100% unwaveringly convinced of the truth that he is proclaiming here. And then notice that Paul does not just say that he knows. He has others that he includes in this dogmatic statement of certainty. He says that we know. We know. He's writing to believers at the church of Rome and then ultimately to every son and daughter of God who is reading his letter, has read it down through history, will read it. And I believe the point that should jump out to our hearts here is this, that you and I, Paul's statement is implying that you and I should also be able to know with absolute certainty the truth that is being proclaimed in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We need be in no doubt about it. It does not need to be wishful or hopeful thinking. It should be absolute, unchanging truth guaranteed by the very person and character of God Himself. We know. And then I want you to notice a paradox. Last week we looked at verses 26 and 27. Do you remember in verse 26 that Paul said, referring to sons and daughters of God, that there is something that we do not know? Verse 26. He wrote, For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. And then in verse 28, comes, but we know something. We don't know something, verse 26, but there is something that we do know. Verse 26 
is referring to the fact that we come into situations in our life, circumstances, when things do not go according to our plan or are outside of our understanding, that we don't at times know what we ought to pray for, meaning we really don't know what the will of God is for this specific situation in this time. How is it that God is working in the midst of this? But then, just two verses later, Paul says, even though we don't know that thing, there is something that we do know. And what we do know is the truth that God is working all things for the good of his children. So here is the paradox here in the Christian life. It is that even in the midst of times when you do not understand what it is that God is doing, there is something that you should understand. And what you should understand is that whatever he's doing, it is for your good. In other words, even if you do not realize it and never this side of heaven realize the details of the will of God in various circumstances in your life, what you can know throughout them all, even if you are in the dark, is that God is not in the dark. And what He is doing in every circumstance for the son and the daughter of God is He's working them out for your good. And somebody said, Hallelujah. We know that. We should know that, sons and daughters of God. So the point is this. Don't let your questions in the present disturb what you know about the ultimate. Don't let the present disturb you about the ultimate. Therefore, Paul says, although he is uncertain about the immediate at times, he is never uncertain about the ultimate. Neither should we be. Next statement. He says, and we know that for those who love God, for those who love God, Here's a question, a critical question, one that seems to emerge from the text. How does our love for God relate to all things working together for our good? Does that question seem pretty obvious here, that it's a critical question? Because Paul says, we know that all things work together for the good for those who love God, or we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. So how are they related? And here's what it can seem like on the surface with just a cursory reading. It can look like this. It can look like that the doctrine Paul is teaching is that when you as a son or a daughter of God are loving God the way that you should, then it is that God supersedes over the events of your life and He works them out for your good. 
Do you see how that could be drawn from that with just a quick look? Man, that God working all things for the good is really dependent upon us loving Him. That our loving Him is what kind of gets Him engaged to take the all things and make them good. But, ladies and gentlemen, if we take a closer look, what we will discover is that that is impossible. That's an impossible interpretation. I'm going to take that a step further. If we look closely, just in this verse alone, we will see that Paul is saying exactly the opposite of that. You see, where would you and I be with this promise of God working all things for our good, if that good working of God using all things depended upon the fervency and the quality of our love for Him day to day. How solid would that promise be in your life? Now, I'm just going to be honest and transparent with you. If that was true for me, that promise would be on shaky ground in my life. Because I am broken. I have been remade, but I still have a sinful mortal body that wants its own way and the desires of sin. And my love for God is not always fervent, white hot. So that if this promise depended upon the fervency of my love, the faithfulness of my love for God, it would not be a very faithful promise in my life because I am too unfaithful. But that is not the promise that Paul is telling us is true here. Remember the whole context of the chapter is that God is teaching us through this letter, through this chapter, that those who are in Christ are no longer condemned. They have been taken from that path, placed on a destiny moving toward glorification, and that ultimately God is, for every believer, going to accomplish that in their life. It doesn't depend upon me and how good I am. It depends upon God and how good He is. Now, we've looked at that over and over again, but we have done that because Paul is saying it over and over again down through this chapter. But let me show you right here in Romans 8.28 how he proves that God working all things for the good for his sons and daughters, is not contingent upon the quality of our love. He proves that by the phrase that he adds at the end of the verse. You see, the promise is, all things work for the good. And the question is, then to whom does that apply? And he says it applies to these individuals. Those who love God, and at the end of the verse, those who have been called according to His purpose. Those who love God, and those who have been called according to His purpose. They are the ones and only the ones to whom all things work together for the good. So let's just 
dive in for a moment to that last statement. Those who have been called according to his purpose. And maybe the way to set this up to explain it. Because we think so much in a linear fashion that we could look at this and say, the first and foremost statement is those who love God. Secondary is those who are called according to his purpose. So that the really important thing is those who love God. But think about that in a linear or a chronological unfolding in history. Which of those came first? Your love for God or God calling you according to his purpose? Let's just unpack that question for a minute. Paul tells us here in that last phrase that God's call is the outworking of his purpose. Listen to it again. Those who are called according to his purpose. That the outworking of his his purposes is that he calls. In other words, he purposes to call someone and then he acts upon that purpose and extends the call. that pretty clear? He determines that he's going to call and then he follows through with that determination, that decided purpose and he extends the call so that the order of the chronological unfolding is like this. Stick with me now. The chronological unfolding is like this. First and foremost, God makes a determination. God decides something. He determines that He is going to place a call upon an individual to call them to himself in salvation. Here's the question. When does God decide that? Now, don't get confused in the question. I don't mean when does God place the call. I'm going to use myself as an example to make this really clear. If God determines that he is going to place a call upon my life to call me to himself, which he did, the question is, when did he decide to do that? Not when did he place the call, when did he decide that he was going to call me to himself unto salvation? Paul answers that question in 2 Timothy 1.9. God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, same idea here, listen, which he gave us in Christ Jesus when? Before the ages began. The purpose and design, the determination of God to call people to himself unto salvation happened when? It happened before the ages began. That is true of every person God has ever called, is, 
calling will ever call unto salvation. Again, myself as the example, here's what that means. It means that before God ever said, let there be light, God had determined that he was going to call Brad Suter to himself, call me into a relationship with him in salvation. He determined ere the world began that he was going to do that. If you're a son or a daughter of God, God determined before there was light that he was going to call you into a salvation experience. Point number one. Then secondly, there was a period after creation in history for me some 40 years ago where God accomplished that predetermined decision from eternity and He came to me and He called me to Himself and in that call He brought me effectually into a relationship to Himself. That's number two in chronological event. He determined what he was going to do before the creation of the world. In fact, it was an eternal determination, an eternal purpose. Listen, God's eternal. Every, he never had a new thought. All the thoughts that he ever had, he always had. His purposes that he has ever had at one moment, he had at every moment throughout all of history. He's an eternal, omniscient God. And so, in the History of his eternal purposes he determined he would call me. Then some 40 years ago in history, he placed that call. And here's what happened in that call of God. Just very quickly. Just like in the beginning of creation when God spoke into the darkness and said, let there be light. When the call of God came to me, He spoke into the darkness of my heart and He flooded it with the light of His truth. And just like at creation that God spoke something out of nothing, God came to me dead in my sins and brought life where there was death. He brought sight where there was blindness. He brought hearing where there was deafness. He enabled me in regeneration to be woken up and to see the truth, to hear the truth, to understand the truth because I was now alive to it. I could see it and understand it and that truth was so beautiful. It so worked in me that it brought me into a relationship, a saving relationship to Him. Some 40 years ago, He accomplished what He determined ere the world began. And then number three. Based upon that call, I begin to love God. Do you see the difference there? The love of God is the byproduct of the call of God, which is the byproduct of the predetermined decision of God. It is all of who? It's all of God. 
It's what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that God works all things for your good as long as you really do a good job of loving God. That's not what he's saying at all. In fact, he is saying exactly the opposite. He's saying this is not contingent upon how well in the moment you are doing at loving God if you're a son or a daughter. What he is saying is this is tied directly to the eternal purposes that God has decreed would happen and that God brought into existence at the moment of the call. And when he did that, you became a new creation. And when that happened, that heart of stone that was an enemy to God became a heart of flesh that loved God. And the result was that because God loved me and called me, I began to love God in return. Do you see that here? That is exactly what Paul is driving home here. Our love for God is absolutely impossible if it depends on us. Romans 8, 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. He's referring there to all unbelievers. He's saying that their mind is hostile to God. Then he says, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. You see, it is impossible, absolutely impossible, just as impossible as it would be for a dead man to get up and start Loving God, it is impossible for those who are lost in their sin to love God. It requires the creative fiat of God to bring that about. He said it directly in 1 John 4.19 that we love God because He first loved us. One more question. Related to that call. Does the call of God in Romans 8.28 always result in salvation of the one he calls? Just a brief statement about the call of God in the scriptures. There are two calls of God. There's a general call and there's a specific call. The general call is the call that goes out unto all the earth. It's the commission that we've been given to go and preach the good news of Jesus Christ to all creation. And when the good news of Jesus is shared by somebody that knows Christ to somebody that doesn't, what is happening in that exchange is that the call of God, the general call, is going out. But there is also a specific call, a call that God gives by His Spirit that takes a dead person and makes them alive. You see, here's the difference. The general call offers life. I can offer that. If you're a believer, you can offer that. You can extend that call. But the specific call of God doesn't just offer life. The specific call of God births life. It creates life where there is death. Radical difference. Only the Spirit of God can do that. But I can show you right from Romans 8.28 that the specific 
call of God is proven right here because God says that those who are called are called according to God's what? Called according to God's what? God's purpose. According to God's purpose. The call is connected to the purposes of God. So here's the question. How does that prove that everyone that God calls will be saved? It proves it by the answer to this question. How many of God's purposes are accomplished? Is there ever anything that God says and determines that He will do that He is not able to get done? No, there is not. There is not. Every one of the purposes of God will be accomplished. And when God, through His Spirit, calls a person unto salvation, that call Always, every single time, based upon the fact that it is the predetermined eternal decree and purpose of God, every time that call will be accomplished. Isaiah 46, 10, and part of verse 11. God declares the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. You see, every one of the purposes of God is going to be accomplished. So if God purposes to call you to Himself, that call is never going to be ineffectual. It is always going to accomplish what it is set forth to accomplish, and that is to bring you into a personal relationship, a saving relationship with Himself. Therefore, do you see how that radically transforms the preeminence and the beauty of the promise that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. What it does is it takes the promise off of the shaky ground of your love and it puts it upon the unmovable, unshakable, undefeatable person of God's character Himself. And God's character never changes. God's will always is accomplished so that the promise is unshakable. The promise is undefeatable. The promise is guaranteed in every single circumstance of life that God who changes not and accomplishes every one of His purposes is going to for every son and daughter of God Work those purposes out for our good. Take every event and use it in His superintendence for our good. Next statement. Paul says, how many things work together for our good? And the answer is, all things. All things. 
work together. All things work together. Now this might seem a little redundant. And the statement might seem very obvious. But I think it would be helpful just for a minute to reflect upon what is included in the all things. You see, here's the problem. Here's the problem with my humanity and I know it's the problem with your humanity. If you're a son or a daughter of God, we have little problem believing that God was able in all of the things of the past to work them out for our good. And we have little problem believing that in the future God will be able to work out whatever is coming our way for our good. The pinch comes, the problem comes in the moment, in the hardship, in the trial. When we get under it and we say, what is going on? In the midst of our pain, we cry out, God, where are you and why are you not fulfilling your promise to me right now? So what is included in the all things? I've just given you a couple of categories. This is really an inexhaustible list, but a couple of categories. In the all things are created or are included all of the eternal beings. Who is the eternal beings? There are three. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The triune God is included in the statement, all things work together for the good. That means God the Father, all of His sovereignty, all of His power, all of His covenant, all of his omnipotence, all of his promises, all of his perfections, all of his actions are working for your good. It means God the Son, all of his titles, all of his offices. It means the one who is the mighty God, Isaiah said, the one who is the Prince of Peace, the one who is the judge of the living and the dead the one who is the friend of sinners. All that Jesus is, is working for the good of everyone that He calls to Himself. And not only God the Father and God the Son, but God the the Holy Spirit in His indwelling, in His relentless, tireless work to develop in the sons and daughters of God good things. He is fully engaged night and day for your good. Next category. All things include all of the created beings. Not just all the eternal beings, but all the created beings. That means all of the other sons and daughters of God. God uses them in your life. At times you enjoy that. At times you question it. But God uses them, the promise is, for your good. But not only the other sons and daughters of God, how about those who maliciously try to harm you, who want to fault you for your faith, who want to persecute you or condemn you or ridicule you? They're included in the all things. Let's go further. 
All created beings. That means all of the angelic hosts of heaven. You know what they are? They are ministering servants of God for the sons and daughters of God to do them good. But let's not stop there. It includes all of the demonic beings. Satan himself. He is included in the all things. All of Satan's plans, all of his devices, all of his fiery darts that he wants to shoot at you, all of the plans and weapons he wants to fashion against you, all of them are included in the all things that God works in the midst of for the good of the sons and daughters of God that he has called according to his purpose. And then all circumstances, good and bad, times of peace, times of storm, times of health, times of sickness, times of plenty, times of want, times of joy, times of sorrow, and on and on. They're all included in the all things. And then all things work together for what? What's the next statement? They work together for our what? For our good. For our good. What's the good? What's the good? That question is answered in verse 29. Paul says, here's the good. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. What is the good God is working in the midst of all things for his sons and daughters? It is this. He is using the all things to transform you in increasing measure into the character likeness of his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, this is a spiritual good an ultimate good that is being promised here. And this is an eternal good, a lasting good that is being promised here. How does God do that? How does God take the bad things and make them through His sovereign superintendence the good things? You could answer that question if you're a son or a daughter of God and have been so for very long. You could answer that question as well as me, looking at your past. God takes the times when we are hard-pressed and beaten down and enduring trials and hardships. He takes those things and uses them to bring us to the end of ourselves to show us that we cannot do it on our own. That what we need is an absolute dependency upon God so that those things that were intended to harm us by the enemy and by others actually are used to draw us to and cause us to run to God who is our ever-present help in times of trouble. And then God takes the lack of or the loss of material possessions as another example. And how does he use those? He uses those to show us that the things of this world are fleeting and empty and have no hope and no ultimate promise to them so that we more and more move away from materialism and the things that don't satisfy and instead look for the true treasures, the treasures in heaven where moth and rust does not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. See, it reattunes us to take our eyes off the world and put them onto God and things that are eternal. And then God uses a bed of illness as another example. And what does He do with a bed of illness in the life of a son or a daughter of God? He uses that bed of illness to show us that we are frail and that life is fleeting 
And that we better not be putting our hope and our health and what is here. We need to fix our eyes on what is eternal. We need to realize that this body, no matter what, is wasting away and put our stock in the fact that we are being renewed internally day by day and headed to a glory in which this mortal decaying body will be gone and the redeemed body, the immortal, imperishable body, we will be clothed with. You see, all of the things of God take humiliation for another example. What does God do with humiliation in our life? What does Scripture say that God does for those who humble themselves? He lifts them up. He lifts them up. Those who exalt themselves, He puts down. Those who humble themselves, He lifts up. You see, just the incredible truth here is that God is able to take what externally and physically, visually looks so detrimental. And in His sovereign superintendence, He works in the midst of every one of those things. Whether it's a circumstance, whether it's a person, or whether it's the forces of Satan himself. And He uses them for your good if you're a son or daughter of God. He does that every single time, all the time. You see, that word that he is working in the Greek, the tense in which that word is given, is not the past tense, God has worked for your good. And it's not the future tense, God will work for your good. It is the present tense. It's the present active indicative. It means it is something that is an ongoing reality in the present that keeps being true. In other words, the point is God right now for every son or daughter of God is working in all things for their good. It is an ongoing reality in the moment. I'm going to just close that and illustrate it with two examples. You see, the point that Paul is striving to drive home here is he wants you to be convinced like he's convinced. He wants you to know that you know that you know if you are a child of God that you are secure in the love and purpose and call of God because that is the most influential truth in your battle against daily sin. It doesn't encourage sin. It is the greatest deterrent internally when you understand the beauty of that truth that leads you and motivates you to live more ardently for God. Two examples to reinforce that. One from the Old Testament, one from the New. The one from the Old Testament, I believe, is God's exposition of Romans 8.28. You say, well, wait a minute. The Old Testament became before the New. How can something in the Old Testament be an exposition of something in the New? Because the truth of Romans 8.28 didn't become truth when Paul penned it. 
It has always been truth throughout all of eternity. And what God did in Genesis is he, listen, he gave nine chapters in one man's story to prove, vividly illustrate the truth of Romans 8.28. It's the story of Joseph. Here's the story of Joseph in warp speed. Joseph had a dream, 17. And that dream he told to his brothers and they hated him for it because in that dream, the picture was that he would one day rule over them. And so what they did in their hatred for their brother, their younger brother, the youngest brother, is that they took him and they threw him into a pit and then there were some slave traders coming by and so they decided not just to kill him but to make a little money off the exchange and they sold him to the slave traders that were passing by who took him to Egypt and sold him as a slave in Potiphar's house. In Potiphar's house, he served without any rights as a slave and he did so diligently, he did so faithfully and he was a good-looking young man and Potiphar's wife one day while her husband was gone says, that's a good-looking young man. And she tried to seduce Joseph and Joseph would have nothing to do with that seduction and she was a scorned woman and so she claimed to her husband when he returned that he had tried to rape her and so he was thrown into prison, into Pharaoh's prison in Egypt and there he languished for a number of years but he faithfully and tirelessly served there and was a good servant until the warden became so impressed that he did the same thing that Potiphar had done. He put him in charge of the prison, a prisoner in charge of the prison like Potiphar had put him in charge of his household because he had been so faithful in the hard times. And then some men were sent from Pharaoh's palace to the prison One was the butler, one was the baker. While they were in the prison, they had dreams. Joseph interpreted their dreams. Their dreams came out just as he had interpreted. And the butler was restored to the palace of Pharaoh. And Joseph's request was, remember me when you go to the king and get me out of here. And I can just see the hopes being high in the life of Joseph. Here it's going to be. I'm going I'm to have a good word brought to the Pharaoh for me from the butler. But the butler forgot all about Joseph. And there he languished in the prison for another two years. From the time he was thrown into the pit until that moment, it was a 17-year downward spiral into worse and worse and tougher, tougher hardships. 17 years. But then Pharaoh had a dream. Joseph was called up out of the prison to the palace. He interpreted the dream. Pharaoh honored him and made him second in charge of all of the land of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. And just as Joseph said would happen, there would be seven years of plenty, seven years of want. During the seven years of want, the famine was so severe all over the land that Joseph's brothers came to him, not knowing it was him, to buy food because he was the one in charge of all the granary of Egypt. And in that exchange, one of those meetings with his brothers, 
Listen to the truth of Romans 8, 28. Joseph said, Genesis 45, 7, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Did you hear that? Did you hear what Joseph claimed? He who had been brutally treated and sold by his brothers, he interpreted that event and he said this, God sent me here. Let me make that even plainer. Joseph saw in the sin of his brothers the sending of God. This is what you did in sin, but God took what you did in sin and he actually made that ascending to do exactly what he had determined he would do. Then in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20, he said to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about what many people, that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph said, You meant it for evil, but why you were planning and purposing and determining to do me evil, God was superintending what you were doing and he was planning and purposing and determining that he was going to take your evil acts and he was going to use them as the tools to accomplish my good and your good and the good of many. Wow, that sovereignty that's, that's real sovereignty that operates within the realm of man's free choice to do evil, yet God is able, even in the midst of that, to do the good for every son and daughter of God. Somebody get excited about that. That is awesome. That is awesome for you and for me. And then the next and final example which is really the greatest of all history. It's the cross of Jesus. And here's why it's the greatest of history. Because what you have in the cross of Jesus is two truths. You have the most evil event in history bringing about the greatest reality in history. The worst that man can do being used by God to bring about the best. That's the story of the cross that's the story of the cross. And listen to the writers of the New Testament that explain that. Acts chapter 4, 27 and 28. Peter says in a message that he preached, for truly in this city, in Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Do you hear what Peter says in that prayer? He says, God, throughout all of Jerusalem, Herod sinned against your holy servant Jesus. Pilate sinned against your holy servant Jesus. The Gentiles sinned against your holy servant Jesus and the Jews sinned against your holy servant Jesus. But you used that sin to accomplish what you had 
predestined. One of those eternal purposes of God that has always been true throughout all of eternity, always been purposed throughout all of eternity. That God used those very sinful acts to accomplish the greatest good, the greatest sin accomplishing the greatest good. Again, Acts 2.23, even more explicitly stated, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Did you hear that? There is both the identification of the sin of men in handing Jesus over to crucifixion and the definite plan and foreknowledge of God delivering Jesus up. Get your head around that. That says that God delivered Jesus up by his predetermined definite plan that he foreknew from all time past to use the greatest sin to deliver up his holy son. And then Luke twenty two twenty two, For the Son of Man goes at it as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Do you see the balance there? In that, it doesn't let man off the hook because it's God's predetermined plan. They are still guilty. They are painted as guilty of the greatest sin. But woe to that man by whom they come. Woe to Herod. Woe to Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles and the Jews who handed him over. Woe to them for their sin. And at the same time, it says that God predestined, foreknew, had a definite plan to use those very things to accomplish the greatest good. Man, if God can do that, if He can take the greatest evil and with it superintend it to bring it out for the greatest good, the good for who? The good for the sons and the daughters of God then what can he do moment by moment in your life when you face trials and hardships and dangers and illnesses and loss of finances and heartaches and on and on and on? What can he do through those? Here's what he can do. He can take all of them. Not only can he, but he will take all of them and he will work them out for your good. That's the promise. That's the promise. So we have looked at just the truth phrase by phrase through that verse. We're going to continue to look there in the verses that follow in the weeks to come, but to capitalize on the truth that saves. The sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to close by taking communion. Worship team and ushers, would you come? What communion is, it is two different elements, the broken bread and the juice. The broken bread representing the broken body of Jesus Christ 
a body broken by the predetermined counsel and will of God throughout all of eternity. And the juice represents the spilled blood of Jesus, the blood that is effective for the remission of sins. So that what you are doing in communion, you are recognizing the willing and sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for sin. And by taking communion, you are saying, I identify with that. I am putting my faith in, or I have put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. Him and Him alone gives me the right to come to a holy God. So communion is for everyone who has placed their faith in Christ or is placing their faith in Christ. Let's pray, and then as the elements are passed, you can take them and receive them at your leisure. Father, thank you for your Son. Thank you for his death. Thank you for his resurrection. Thank you for his holy life. Thank you for his intercession right now at the Father's right hand for the sons and daughters of God. Thank you that he is returning one day on the clouds with his holy angels to consummate history, to ultimately fulfill all of the predetermined purposes of God perfectly, fully, and completely. And thank you, Jesus, that because of the truth of what you have done for every son and daughter of God, we own the truth that all things that come into our life are used by you for our good. Thank you for that. We just now want to remember your sacrifice that makes all of that possible. In Jesus' name I pray.